HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode 87 of Feast Your Ears. We're enjoying wonderful fall weather here in New York, and I couldn't be more excited today to talk to Robin Eckhart. She's the author of Istanbul and Beyond, Exploring the Diverse Cuisines of Turkey. came out last week, and it's an absolutely beautiful book. It is as much a travel log and a love letter about the Turkish country and people as it is a cookbook. Her husband, David Hagerman, shot the book, and the photographs are incredibly mouthwatering and make me wish that a year in Turkey was on my horizon. Thanks, Robin, for taking time to join me. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I hope you don't mind me saying so, but in reading your book and reading your blog, I feel like you're kind of a Diana Kennedy of Asia. <laughs> that's, the, that's a real compliment. <laughs> um, Incredible. You know, people who are listening who know Diana, she, you know, has spent her life, her life's work has been exploring the cuisines of Mexico. And, uh, you know, I feel like that is sort of what you've done for Asia, um, you know. Your website is eatingasia.typepad.com, and it is a 12-year running blog about your life living in and traveling and eating and cooking in Asia. Yep, exactly. Um, which, you know, for a Westerner, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who out there who now are interested in Asian food and interested in those ingredients. Um, and we all, you know, those of us who are interested in those things fantasize, I think, about <laughs> going to live there. But yeah. you, you've done it, and you've documented it incredibly well and beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Can you tell me a little bit about what led you to move to Asia? You you know you grew up in the Midwest. 
I did. And, uh, you know, in, in Michigan and then spent some time in Northern California. Right. Um, I also have a soft spot for Northern California. It's a great place. It is a great they're a little rough right now. My, yeah. A lot of my friends and from my time in the North Bay are dealing with some awful fire yeah, stuff awful. now. Um, but what led you to, to move from the United States and, and to, you know, to go to Asia? Um, well, as an undergrad at Michigan State University, uh, I started as a pre-veterinary med student and much to my father's chagrin, uh, switched to Chinese history after um, a class taught by a just very a charismatic, great professor. And so after I graduated from MSU, I um, went to Chengdu, Sichuan province, as um, their first um, student to study Chinese. Uh, the Chinese program was not good, to say the least. Uh, I'd already been studying for a couple of years, so I switched to teaching English. And so I ended up um, staying in Chengdu for a year. Uh, Dave, uh, Dave and my husband joined me after half a year, and he also taught English there. And that just sort of be, you know, was the nub of our blossoming love of Asia. Um, we uh, went back after graduate school. He got a job in um, Hong Kong, and I, by then, was um, working on a Ph.D. in Chinese politics at UC Berkeley. And um, from there, it just continued moving up to China and then into Southeast Asia, Bangkok and Vietnam and Kale. And so pretty much ever since, you've called that area of the world your home? Yeah, until recently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's amazing, and you make it sound. You make it sound very easy. That it was just one thing oh. flowed into the next, and you uh, just it was, decided to. It was lucky, you know. That's sure. what it was. Luck and serendipity, and um, sort of working a little to to get ourselves there. Yeah. Um, but in the end, it was a lot of luck. Yeah. You mentioned to me in in, uh, in some conversations before the show that um, it was really there that you you know you sort of were your eyes were open to all these different foods and these different flavors that we, you know, don't really have, at least not in the United States. Maybe there's some stuff in Europe, I feel like, you know, you get fish sauces in Italy and things like that. Right. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, as you noted, in Michigan, 1970s childhood. Classic um, dinner was, you know, starch, veg, meat on a plate with maybe a salad or cottage cheese and uh, canned peach half on, on the yeah. side. Um, my mom was a very good cook. She grew up in Arizona and California, and so we had things that other people in my neighborhood weren't eating, exotic things like av avocados and artichokes. <laughs> sure. But um, when I went to Sichuan, um, it was in 1984, and there was no Western food there. Yeah. Um, you went to Beijing if you wanted a hamburger. And um, I was, I guess I it was either either because it was a sink or a, you know sink or swim situation where it's like if I wanted to eat I had to eat what was there, or there was this um, un, as yet undiscovered love of different flavors in me that just blossomed there. So I just immediately took to everything: fishy flavors, prickly ash, chilies, more and more chilies, um, and it did. I think it did turn me into you know, for lack of a better word, a foodie, someone right. who just lived to eat. Right. And and that's so clear in your blog that it is it is about the travel mm -hmm. as well. I mean, and, and one of the things I love is that in your posts, I mean, this morning I was reading your post about drinking coffee in Hanoi mm -hmm. and how, you know, there's always good coffee. So it's easy, even though you're tired from traveling, to get up early in the morning because mm -hmm. you know there's going to be good coffee when you walk out of your hotel and there's going to be good coffee 
two hours later and there's going to be good coffee or 10 steps down the block (laughs) and it's iced and you're hot and sweaty. So what better thing is there than iced strong coffee? But also, you know, some of David's photographs in there are not just of the coffee. I mean, you get a very clear sense of what it's like to be in the coffee shop with the locals who are there drinking it, which makes it much more than just about coffee. It's not about the taste. Because it's like it's like a coffee culture. Sure. It's coffee culture, you know, just in the way that there's wine culture in Italy or in Georgia. And, um, you know, it's it's been said before by many, many people, but food is such an entree into local culture. It's easy, it's accessible, it's non-political, it's non-controversial. Well, kind of. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you love to eat, if you love to drink, you will find your way in a new culture. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is, it, and it's also a somewhat universal language. If you don't speak the language, you can still come in. And if you come into the coffee shop and you look inquisitive and you point at something, they're going to know that that's what you're there for. Yeah, right? sure. And they'll work with you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm reminded of the, the first time I went to Japan, I spoke almost zero Japanese and Google Translate, which now, for those of you who are going to Japan, is an incredible tool there because the language barrier coming from America is huge, uh, didn't exist. And so I spent a lot of time just pointing and smiling and had a great time. I mean, went to a number of incredible restaurants, had no idea what I was ordering on the menu. I pointed at other people's plates. I learned how to say, I would like that, please, Mm -hmm. because I wanted to at least, you know, I want to be nice about it. (laughs) I learned how to order coffee and I learned how to order beer. Those Mm -hmm. were the two first things I learned to say in Japanese. Uh, You know, what are, are those the kind of things that you would recommend to people who are traveling in these places where, you know, I feel my sense of traveling when I've traveled in Europe is that in a lot of the places you go, they're going to going to be some understanding of English. Sure. You're going to be able to get by. Sure. You know, whether even if, you know, the French waiter might like turn his nose up at you because but he's still going to understand you and bring you food and whatever. Right. Um, you know, but if you're getting into, you know, a tiny little coffee shop somewhere in, you know, Sumatra, you mentioned having, you know, you mentioned having coffee right. and tea there, you know, are those people going to understand any of the language, or is it really about the pointing and the gesturing and the smiling? I think it, the smiling is very important. Um, be unafraid, be curious, um, always smile, because if you are unsure and you don't smile and you feel embarrassed because you can't speak, people pick up on that and that makes them nervous, you know? Um, and be unafraid to make a fool of yourself. Play, <laughs> great... play charades, yep. walk around the restaurant, you know, pointing at people's food like I like that. And, um, People generally will be so thrilled that you're making an effort and they will work with you, I've found. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, You know, Istanbul and Beyond is the book. And it's, you know, as I said earlier, it's beautiful. Um, I've made a couple of recipes out of it. They're delicious. I saw that on Instagram. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so, so after all of this time, I mean, you've spent, you know, more than, I mean, you've spent at least 12 years writing and with David photographing foods in, in Asia, mostly Southeast Asia. What led you to Turkey? Okay, well, um, a circuitous route. Um, Dave and I were living in Shanghai in the late 90s. Um, I was working on my dissertation, and um, which I never finished, by the way, but I did do field work in China, and um, Dave was um, working a corporate job there. And we had been in China for three years, and we just needed to get out. Um, We had Chinese New Year's. It was a three-week window of opportunity for travel. We had frequent flyer uh, miles that would get us to Europe. Europe was too expensive for us. So a friend said, why don't you just go to Turkey? 
And it was February, it was Ramadan. We didn't know, you know, that from anything. Um, but we did get tickets on Lufthansa for free. And um, we went to Turkey and we spent three weeks. Um, and it, it was strange. I remember driving in uh, from Ataturk Airport that uh, first night we got there after midnight and driving past the Blue Mosque and it was lit up and there were stars in the sky and it was very cold out and it was a brilliant clear evening and I don't know there's just something um, you know without making it without using the word exotic it was just completely different to anything I'd known or experienced and from the next day we just loved Turkey we spent nine days in Istanbul and then we flew to Izmir and picked up a car and drove um, east uh, through Konya and then um, south to the Mediterranean and um, it was just a fantastic experience and when we left um, after that trip I said to Dave on the plane I distinctly remember saying this I don't know how I don't know why but someday Turkey is going to be a big part of our lives and we moved back to Berkeley later that year and I started studying Turkish at Berkeley and um, coincidentally my uh, Turkish teacher was Ayla Algar who's written two Turkish cookbooks Uh, and um, we went to Turkey back and forth, uh, didn't go for a while after moving to Southeast Asia in 2002, and then went back in 2010 um, for the first time in a long time and thought, you know, are we still going to love it? Was that a situational thing? Whatever. The moment we landed in Istanbul, we were both just like, oh, we love this place. <laughs> and by that time, we were both freelancing, um, and we we had the we had a way and we had the time to work on something in Turkey and the book is a result of that. And and I mean the the book really covers I mean you know I I had you know some sense of like vaguely what Turkish meant at least to me as an American you know felt very Middle Eastern with the maybe a little bit of Balkan influence um, mm-hmm. and but but really had no understanding until I looked at the book about how vastly different mm-hmm. the different regional cuisines are right. that there are areas that are known for their wheat and areas that are known for their cheese and areas that are known for their you know for their fish I mean that they know that it, that it really has that regionality yeah that I think as a as an American we've come to understand those things about places in Europe exactly. because we have, have a long history of trade with Europe and we have a long history of European immigrants that have influenced us here. Right. And I think once you get to the more modern, I mean, we're living in this really weird time related to immigration, <laughs> yeah. especially from that part of the world where even if you are open to it and you are on the what I consider the right side of it and right. you want to welcome these people in, they understandably in some cases are relatively closed off in this country because they have their communities and and it is sometimes hard I think for us to, exactly. to sort of break into that and, and come to understand that um, because sometimes those people need to be for protecting themselves a little bit skeptical sure of you know a white guy who comes into their restaurant or comes yeah. into their you know although I do find the same thing is true it's at least in New York you know the, the same thing is true I mean New York is is a wonderful melting pot um, and so you can go and sort of seek out these these restaurants in these places and have a great time and smile and you know right and, and talk to people and, and eat eat some of this wonderful food um, I think the thing with Turkey that um, surprised us was just how welcoming people were I mean I you were talking about the the incredible diversity and I think that's something we discovered or learned ourselves on our first, that trip back in 2010, we spent time in Istanbul and then we picked up a car in Gaziantep and drove for three weeks um, north and east to the uh, border with Iran and then up to the border with uh, Armenia and then back inward. Um, 
And we were just blown away. I just, you know, we traveled a fair bit in Turkey by then, and it was just like, I, I'd never heard of any of these foods. Why haven't I heard of any of these foods? Um, and also, what, you know, people are just opening their doors to us. They're inviting us in for tea. They're inviting us into their kitchen. They're, you know, asking us to come and hang out in their bakeries. And um, I think at that moment, it, it struck us both, you know, a, like people need to know about these foods, and um, B, we could actually do something like this here because people are so very eager to share their yeah. culinary traditions. They want to share yeah. it. Um, and yeah, so. Well, it's so clear from the from the book and from reading the recipes and having made some of them that it's it's home cooking. Yeah. Right? It's absolutely. not this is not coming out of the Escoffier no. you know, world <laughs> in in France and in no. Italy and in restaurants and, you know, molecular gastronomy and those things. I mean, no. you know, the I think the the Imam cried, right? That's the Imam fainted. The Imam yeah. fainted, you know, eggplant dish that I made last week or the week before. You know, I mean there's like six ingredients maybe i mean it's not, it's not right. that much in it and not weird ingredients no, and you it's know not, by and the it's, american standard absolutely yeah yeah and and it it wasn't hard to make no and but it was not a type of eggplant dish i'd ever cooked before yeah i mean that's the the amazing thing is like in so many instances i think i capture that in some recipes in the book it's familiar ingredients familiar to the american cook they're just used in different ways that produce a flavor that we never thought of or ingredients like tomato paste that aren't used for you know to thicken a sauce but actually to lay the base for a sauce because um something that was brought home to me that I never really thought about while researching the book is like so much of what we eat now, so many ingredients that we use were um, developed as a way to preserve agricultural bounty. So for me, an American growing up in America, tomato paste was just tomato paste. Going to Turkey, you see people with piles and piles of tomatoes making tomato paste in the fall because they live places where there are no fresh tomatoes in the winter. And this is a way to carry that, to have a taste of tomato in the in the winter and so they use those ingredients differently it's not to add a flavor it's like the base of a dish right yeah we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors um and when we come back we'll continue to talk about turkey and istanbul and beyond okay This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Um. 
Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today, if you're just joining us, I have Robin Eckhart here in the studio. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about her book, Istanbul and Beyond, and talking about Turkey and Turkish food and traveling in Turkey. Robin, are there uh, ingredients that you come across or came across in your travels or and in some, you know we were talking before the break that a lot of the recipes are very easy. I mean they're, they're ingredients that we know in the United States that are easy to come by. Right. Are there any ingredients that are a little bit more of a challenge um, but that you might suggest people do seek out? Um, sure. I think uh, you can get most of the ingredients in the states. Um, the difference might be um, the quality of ingredients. So I think by now a lot of people have been turned on to the wonders of pomegranate molasses. Sure. It's an amazing ingredient. Um, it is, yeah, it's worth seeking out. Um, but there's a difference between, you know, between mass-manufactured pomegranate molasses, which contains things like glucose or things to sweeten it or thicken it, and the artisan stuff, which is really simply, I watched it being done in Hatay province, pomegranate juice boiled down until it's thick. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was reading about that in the book, I thought, oh, it's like maple syrup. Yeah. Which I had never, I mean, I'd never made sort of the connection that yeah. you would make it the same way. Of course you would. Of course you'd just boil it down to thicken it, and it would caramelize some of the sugars. I'd say think of uh, something like pomegranate molasses the way you might think of olive oil. Okay, for for maybe for salad dressings that have other ingredients in them, you don't need the very best of the best. You just want that little hint of, of fruity citrus. Um, but for other dishes... Uh, maybe you do want to spend a little more on a really nice pomegranate molasses that you can order from a place like, I think, Nar Gourmet, um, which sources things in Turkey. Um, a bottle might cost you $12, but you're not going to use, you know, glugs and glugs of it. This is for right. when you use a teaspoon for it. Spool or, or a tablespoonful, and I think even you know, I mean, in in the the food world, I mean, twelve dollars for a bottle is not that much when you consider what people are spending on things like balsamic. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, another ingredient I really love is mahlap, which is uh, the ground um, in kernels from the seed of a certain type of wild cherry, and it's been compared to vanilla or been called the Turkish vanilla. It just has this very uh, sweet, warm scent that adds something really nice to baked goods and you have to use it in very small amounts uh, because if you use too much it makes the whatever you're making bitter. Um, I have one recipe for a Syriac Christian spice bread uh, in there from Mardin province in the southeast and it uses mahlap and I say you know if you can't get the mahlap which you actually can order on like from good spice stores just leave it out don't substitute vanilla. Right it's not it's not worth making that substitution. No no. (laughs) Um, it's hard to research Turkey. I mean, you know, in any time you, if you go to Google, which we all do probably, you know, more times a day than we probably should, uh, instead of picking up the phone and calling someone who might know about something or emailing somebody, if you look up Turkey, you don't find anything really about the country, right? Because we, as a country, to us, Turkey is related to this large it's a bird. <laughs> bird that we cook at once a year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, aside from your book and, and your website, are there other resources where you would point people if they're interested in, in delving further? Just because a, a quick Google search is not going to yield much. Even I tried this morning. I said, okay, I'm going to look up Turkish. And I was looking up for articles about Turkish uh, you know, uh, gourmet food, I think, is what I used as a search, and it still comes up with things about Turkey. Yeah, there's a few places. Um, the Turkish Cultural Foundation has uh, a website devoted to food, and I can't remember exactly. It's something like Turkish 
foodforfood.org or something. It's an org. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting info about food traditions and, and foods that people might not know about. Um, the website culinarybackstreets.com, um, they run, uh, they started in, in Istanbul, they were originally Istanbul Eats, is a trove of information about cool. food in Istanbul and beyond. Um, and there is a Turkish journalist, food journalist named Aylin Onetan, and she writes for one or more of the Turkish newspapers, and I can't, dailies, I can't remember which ones, but if you Google her, Aylin Onetan, you'll come up with a lot of great information on Turkish food. Excellent. Thank you for the recommendation. You're welcome. I want to talk about anchovies. Mm, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you wrote an article uh, a couple of years ago in the Times right. about uh, about this kind of I don't know anchovy pilgrimage right. that you went on. Which, to me, when I started reading it, I thought, oh man, if this could just be my life. When, yeah. <laughs> I, when I was nineteen or twenty in college, uh, a close friend and I cooked up this idea one night. Um, we were two of very few people, uh, you know, in our sort of friend group who actually liked to cook mm-hmm. a lot, and, and we were cooking one night and we cooked up this idea at the time it was before you know you could get paid to write an article for the internet so we cooked up this idea <laughs> to write write a book and our idea was let's drive all of route one on the east coast of yeah. america and all of route one on the west coast of america yeah. and do a book that's like two halves oh, about yeah. the food oh, along the drive that's a great idea and we never you know we never oh. got anybody to buy it or anything but that was this idea and so reading starting to read your article about this sort of 300 mile pilgrimage driving around turkey eating anchovies made me think that's it that this is sort of a manifestation of that right so tell me about tell me about that i mean how how did how did that come about? And then what, tell me about anchovies in Turkey, because yeah, they must I, be different than they are here. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think I've actually eaten them here unless they've been preserved in oil or in salt. Um, but I wasn't even aware, really, of anchovies in Turkey until maybe 2011, when for some reason we were in Istanbul, and, and um, it was winter, and so it was anchovy season. And anchovies just suddenly seemed to be everywhere and I we started eating them and enjoying them and a fishmonger in Kadıköy at the market in Istanbul said uh, hey but if you like anchovies you really need to go to the Black Sea and so we were just there we had an unplanned week and so we just booked a ticket to the Black Sea picked up a car and drove the length of it and it was like anchovies were everywhere um, it's a religion on the Black Sea really uh, at this time in, in winter um, people are grilling them they're in bread they're in stews they're um, they're fried they're dipped in cornmeal and fried and people will eat them you know two or three times a day even when they're in season I mean locals are just crazy for them and so they were delicious because in the winter, uh, black sea anchovies put on an extra layer of fat because sure. it, it's so cold. Um, but also it was just the joyous feeling of being, it just seemed like one big anchovy party. <laughs> um, and so that gave me the idea for the article that I pitched to the Times. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what it is with anchovies. Maybe because they're, they're so seasonal yeah. and they're so rare and... After that trip, when anchovies were everywhere, we did go back in subsequent years where there were hardly any anchovies because the seas were warm, because there were a lot of um, bonito, which they think eat anchovies. No one right. really knew why, but it was like, we went back one year and there was like no anchovies at all and everyone was so sad. I mean, you know, and I think that, I think there are, there are more and more 
ingredients as we have moved to a place where we can get anything at any time. I mean, right. you mentioned tomatoes before, right? You can get, not, I mean, in, in New York, you can get pretty good tomatoes all year round. Yeah. They're not as great as the height of summer right. real field tomatoes, but you can still, you know, you know, you're not, it's not just like crunchy beefsteaks in the middle of winter anymore. But there are still things like anchovies and things that are so perishable that you just can't even do it. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and I, I hope that the anchovy populations have returned and that it was just some off years, but I fear, you know, that the seas are getting so overrun, you know, over harvested. Yes. The black sea is as a fishmonger on the black sea said to me, it's called the black sea, but it's really like a lake. So it's pollution okay. and it's also overfishing. Um, yeah. and, you know, we were there one year where they were pulling so many, these trawlers were pulling so many anchovies out of the sea that they had too many to sell, and they actually brought in a machine to the port in Sinop to um, grind the anchovies and to feed, animal feed. Right. But these beautiful, fresh anchovies, it was yeah. sad and alarming. Um and then from an economic standpoint, the fishermen, if they have yeah. them, they aren't getting enough money for them, so it's sort exactly. of unfortunate. Exactly. Yeah, and the industry employs a lot of uh, off-season hazelnut farmers. Um, and it's also a really big part of the culture in that um, on a certain part of the sea, there's a dance called the horon, which uh, imitates the like the flailing of the anchovy when it's... I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really ingrained. And so you think, well, if anchovies disappear, what happens to this whole like slice of culture on the Black right. Sea? Uh, it's disturbing. Yeah. Um, are there other... Are there other things like the anchovy in Turkey where you kind of need to be in the right place at the right time? Apricot season in Malatya. Um, I mean, in that area around Malatya, which is uh, in the southeast, uh, apricots that taste the way I fleetingly remember them tasting when I was a kid. You know, it just seems like nowadays you get apricots, they don't taste like much. Just incredible. Um, I think um, fall on the Black Sea in general is amazing because of the figs, the plums. Uh, people are making all these amazing uh, pekmezes, which are fruit molasses. So you've got fruit molasses made from um, cactus fruit, from figs, from mulberries, from plums, from um, rose hips, from uh, cornelian cherries. It's just the Black Sea incredible in itself is a very bountiful part of Turkey. And so if you're there when things are in season. Oh, and another thing is um, in Van. Uh, Van and Hakkari provinces on the Iran-Iraq borders, um, foraging is huge because it's not there's not much arable land for farming. And in the spring, people just go nuts foraging all these wild herbs and um, vegetables that they dry or brine or pickle to uh, add to a local cheese called herb, oat lupineries, herb cheese. And that's quite a like frenzied time too, with this sort of feeling of like we're we're celebrating a seasonal bounty and we're also stocking up right, for the right, rest you have of the year. Right, to work really hard to yeah. deal with it while you got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's cool. Given the current political uh, sort of uneasiness of that part of the world, right. is Turkey a place where people can still travel? Absolutely. I mean, Istanbul is as you know safe as you know Brussels or Paris. Sure. Um, I would travel to, I'm planning, we're planning to go back uh, in uh, January to eastern Turkey, uh, maybe to Hatay province and hopefully to the Black Sea. Um, sure, there is some political instability and you should pay attention to right. the news. Yeah. Um, but you could certainly pick up a car and happily drive around the Aegean, the Mediterranean, into central Anatolia and um, sort of down to the southeast. And the Black Sea is completely, you know, doable. Yeah. I would yeah. say, go, it's anchovy I've to, season. I've been to Crimea on the other side. Oh, I'd so. love to go to Crimea. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's doable. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll I'll have to think about that. My we we like road trips in our family. My, we do too. My daughter's eight, and my son is almost four. So maybe in a year or two, and my son can stay up a little later. But yeah, road trips are great. Family road trip in Turkey. That, that would be the, great on the horizon. That'd be really cool. Uh, if somebody had say two weeks um, in in Southeast Asia um, and wanted to see like some of the places that like that you like, what do you have any? Do you have favorites? Um, I mean, it's so vast, and you've written so much about all these different places. That might be kind of an unfair yeah, question. It's hard. Um, people often send me an email with just that question because people do seem to only have two weeks. And a lot of times um, they want to do it all. So they, you know, they're putting in like plane trips and stuff. You know, I want to go to Taiwan and I want to go to Thailand and I want to go to Malaysia. And I just always say, pick one place and do it. Um, well and slow. I think that's a great recommendation. Um, I mean, it's it's so hard. I think that we get into this thing that you know you're going to be on at least a flight from the United States for 14, 15, 17 hours. Yeah, and which you think, takes a lot out of you. It does, and and you think, all right, I'm going to get here, and I'm just going to hit the ground, and I'm going to hit the ground, and there's going to and there's so much I want to see, so I want to tick all the boxes. Oh. But I, I love your recommendation of just checking out a place. Yeah, just go and and you know pick a an arrival city and a departure city, they may be the same or they may not. And leave your itinerary loose. Because even if you're going to, say, Thailand at the height of the season, um, you can still find places to stay. You can still rent a car at the last minute. You can still book a flight at the last minute, an internal flight or a train ticket. Um, it's not like going to Europe in the summer where things are really tightly booked. Right. Uh, and um, sort of let, you know, to the extent that you can, um, keep your itinerary loose and, and go where your nose or your palate leads you. You could, you know, very happily spend two weeks in Bangkok and Northern Thailand yeah, alone right. and just come away with a really, um, with a great experience, um, probably some extra poundage yeah. and, um, a, a full, you know, a good understanding of like how people eat there and, and what the cuisine is like and what the variations of the cuisine are like. Um, don't just don't try to do it all. It's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I, I do find, you know, having having traveled to Europe um, in the 90s and then again in the early 2000s, it felt like it was well, well traveled. So I right. knew like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be in London. I'm going to go to the Tate and I'm going to be in Paris. I'm going to go to the Louvre and I want to see the Musée d'Orsay and I want right. to, you know, see the, the gardens and I want to eat in this restaurant or at least go to the Marais and try and find a restaurant there, all these things. When I've traveled in Asia, mostly in Japan, I feel like I sort of try to leave it more open because I know whatever I find is going to be good. Is going to be good. Yeah. And you know, even you know, even the most mediocre ramen yeah. that I've had in Tokyo <laughs> is still as good or better than the ramen I can get here. Oh so, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and the, just the experience of walking around. I mean, that you know. Yeah. Give yourself time to just take things in and also to relax. I mean, there's nothing wrong with like taking the afternoon and having a nap in your hotel room. If that's what appeals, (laughs) it is vacation after all. It's not a competition sport. Yes, indeed. And that's, that's also a really good point. I think people definitely get into this sort of idea, especially with things like Instagram or ticking things off, you know, Anthony Bourdain ate here, here and here. And I have to do that. No, it's fine. Just like go find your own noodles and they'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. And and, may, and you might meet someone who invites you to their house or exactly. invites you to a party. Or, or gives you a tip on a great place that exactly. no one else knows about. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Well, thanks, Robin, so much. It's been it's been wonderful talking with you. Thanks for having me on the show. So today, you just arrived in New York yesterday, yep. and you're here for about a week, right? Until uh, Saturday. Until Saturday, in New so York. not even quite. Uh, and so you have a couple of events. You, I know you have an event at MoFAD at the Museum of Food and Drink tonight. We do have a MoFAD event tonight, and that's our only event in New York. Um, and then f- until December 1st, um, with a break for Thanksgiving, we'll be traveling across the country doing a bunch of... Um, demos and cooking classes david and i will be signing and doing presentations and we have a couple special dinners um planned with um some restaurants so very very cool and then back we didn't even get to talk about it but we're basically out of time and then back to italy where you now are living yes uh, we moved to italy in june after um 20 years in asia and um are enjoying it immensely very cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, don't forget, please go immediately if you're, you know, when you're listening to this, wherever <laughs> you are, and look at eatingasia.typepad.com. Um, that is Robin's website, and it is it is incredible. Thank you. Um, you can also look at istanbulandbeyondcookbook.com. You can follow Robin on Twitter at eatingasia and Instagram at istanbulandbeyond. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tattashore for engineering. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, and you can reach out to me if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.